Dear Lord, you've told us in your word that it's not by human might or human power, but it is by your Holy Spirit that the great work of transformation, regeneration, salvation, eternal life is accomplished. So we reach up and ask believingly for your Spirit. Thank you. We do receive according to our faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our, our topic at this hour has to do with the mark of the beast. We're not just discussing the mark of the beast, identifying it in this particular session, but we're going to identify the principle. There's a twofold principle of the mark of the beast. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, verses 16 and 17, it says that there's a power that will cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their forehead or in their hand, and that no man might buy or sell, saving he that receives the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And it goes on to state that there will be a decree by which people will be destroyed if they refuse to receive this mark. Now, there are two features of this mark of the beast. Many people have studied what the mark of the beast is. I think I have tens of thousands of friends who've studied what is the mark of the beast, but I doubt that they've studied what is the principle of the mark of the beast. Wouldn't it be a tragic thing if a group of men and women in a great missionary program were warning the world against the mark of the beast, and that rightly, because Revelation 14, 9 to 12 gives us a tremendous warning from God against the mark of the beast. But wouldn't it be a tragic thing for a group of people of hundreds of thousands giving this warning against the mark of the beast, per se, and not understanding the principle upon which the mark of the beast is received? The principle is, and it's twofold, it is pressuring people to do wrong. The second phase is pressuring people to do right. Did you know that it's just as wrong to use human pressure on an adult to do right as it is to high pressure an adult to do wrong? Maybe in the extreme that it isn't it's quite as deep because one is an earnest desire to do right but let us never forget that those of us who have studied the subject of the mark of the beast must understand that those who enforce the mark of the beast think that they're doing right. So anyone who tries to high-pressure another adult to do right is practicing one of the phases of the mark of the beast. Let me illustrate. All mental pressure exerted against adults can actually be mental cruelty, and it can consist of the principle of the mark of the beast. I'm thinking of three classes of, very, uh, of a very dedicated church who know a great deal about the mark of the beast. One class is a class of individuals who are endeavoring by God's grace to share the principles of the mark of the beast as God has said that we should, but they're balancing it with a wonderful gospel, which is presented in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. This beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ is presented, and in the light of this gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the second message about the fall of Babylon. So one class is doing this. They're broadcasting to the world the love that they found in Jesus Christ that the gospel of Jesus Christ is received by the choice of free will, the heart opening in simple childlike faith. But there's another class in the same group of people who know about the mark of the beast, who know something about the remnant people of God, but they, in an endeavor to not force anybody, and also in an endeavor to be happy, have misunderstood the character of God. They've misunderstood that God makes us happy, that he that keepeth the law happy is he. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened unto my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river. They have never found this wonderful consolation and joy and peace and tranquility in Jesus. So though they belong to the larger group, 
who are to be giving the great message of God, they're going out and taking hold of the world, drinking a little of its sensuous pleasure, not abstaining from the appearance of evil. Little by little, they're being sucked in to the lust of the world, to the business of the world, to the obsession to make gain. And the day of the Lord can come as a thief in the night. There's a third class who are not sensuous. They're trying to steer away from all of this evil in the world, but they've never learned that God's gospel is a balanced message. So instead of their giving the everlasting gospel and talking about the mark of the beast and studying the mark of the beast in the light of this beautiful everlasting gospel, they have merely zeroed in on the pressure on their friends to do right. So they use mental pressure. They use condemnation. They try to shame people into doing right. They try to belittle them into doing right. They point their finger at them and put them in a corner and they out-argue them, all in an effort to force their friends to believe. Humanity cannot force adult humanity to believe. It comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that presents Jesus in his beauty. When he has come, he will testify of me. And look unto me and you'll be saved. But this group has forgotten to look to Jesus. They think it's enough for them to go through the theory. And so using every mental pressure at their disposal, they say, oh my, I better work on this person a little more. I better out-argue him. I better let him know how he's doing wrong. So they're taking the place of the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin. But the Holy Spirit balances it with this conviction, a convincing of, of righteousness, which is received by faith. John 16, 8, and of the possibility of standing before the judgment bar of God at the last day, clothed in the righteous garments of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. I was uh, invited some time ago, thousands of miles from here, to visit a couple individuals who had been attending a Sabbath-keeping church. The per person who asked me to visit them said, these people believe everything that we as a church teach, and all in the world they need is to have you invite them to be, a, to be members of the church. So I went out naively. Bless your heart. They, I went out naively, and I didn't stop to realize that surely people wouldn't be coming to a church without people having welcomed them and putting big arms of love about them and inviting them into the fellowship. So I went out to the home of these people, and I thought to myself, now how are you going to meet total strangers, and how are you going to invite them to be a member of the church when you're merely a guest yourself. And I thought, as I was praying, I thought, you know, perhaps the best way would be to put a little humor in it. So as I stepped into their home and I said, uh, introduced myself, I said, I've come over to propose to you folks. And they had a questioning look on their countenance. Uh, to propose to them? Yes, I said, I'd like to propose that you, that you marry our church. <laughs> but there was nothing humorous in that statement to them. That statement was packed full of pressure to them. And the lady turned and glared at me, and she said, what do you mean? She said, I don't even believe the seventh day is the Christian Sabbath. And you invite me to unite with the church? And right away I saw that somebody had been pressuring her. They hadn't just been inviting her, they'd been pressuring her. And immediately I said, uh, calling them by name, Mr. and Mrs. Blank, will you forgive me? I said, I want to explain why I said it. And they were still glaring a little bit or looking off with a disgusted countenance. I said, will you forgive me? I said, let me tell you why I came. Someone told me that you folk believed everything that we're teaching and that all that you needed was a warm welcome. You wanted to know if you were welcome in the church. And so I thought I would put it in the atmosphere of a little humor. And right away, their countenances changed. I saw they relaxed, and they understood. Then as I was praying for the Holy Spirit, he impressed me to take the next step. 
I said, uh, may, I, may I ask you this question, however? Could it be that you do believe that the seventh day is a Christian Sabbath? But might it be that somebody who has presented this to you has, with this study, applied a lot of pressure? And in your resisting the pressure, you, resort, you, you resisted the total thing. And the lady, you ought to have seen the look of, of, of wonderment and acceptance in her countenance. She said, Pastor, yes, I do believe the seventh day is the Christian Sabbath. But she said, I rejected the pressure that's been applied. And without my realizing it, the idea, without my realizing it, in rejecting the pressure, I, re I rejected the total thing. We had a nice visit. I prayed with them, went on my way. Do you see what happens, friends? When a perfectly good, quote-unquote, person uses bad pressure, you see what can happen? Let me give you another example. We're holding a series of evangelistic meetings, and we're presenting to people how the Lord gives us victory over, over various little obsessions and bad habits and what have you. And God says, God says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, he puts in our lips these words, Thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was sharing with my audience in this evangelistic series this thought, whatever you want God to give you victory over, you can come to him asking. Matthew 7, 7 says, Jesus said, ask. You can come believing and telling him you believe. Mark eleven twenty four records Jesus as saying, believe that you receive. And then you can not merely believe you receive, but reach right up with, with hands of faith and take it. Matthew 21, 22 gives the whole ABC program, all things that you ask. In prayer, believing you shall receive. In other words, Jesus said, don't merely ask and believe. You have the right to reach right up and take it. It's a free gift. Jesus already paid for it. The total price has been paid for. It's at our disposal. Right after the meeting one night, a member of the flock came to me. She said, look, we want you to come right over to our apartment if you could possibly do so right after the meeting, after you talked to some of the people here and visit with my husband so he can gain the victory over tobacco. Oh, I was so thrilled because I knew the people very well. After a few moments of chatting with some of the people, we slipped over to the apartment, my wife and myself, and right away I began to share and to summarize with this fine lady's husband the ABCs of receiving victory in whatever area we need, as well as the total victory in Jesus. And I cited a few illustrations how other people who have been downcast and worried and defeated have learned that they can look up in the face of infinite love. And the everlasting gospel says, I have good news for you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not your power. It isn't what you can do. It's what you will receive. And after I was through sharing some of these experiences, and I was looking at the man's countenance. He looked very serious. And his wife, I could see, was moving right along with me. Now I said then, now what we'll do? We'll kneel in prayer. We'll open our Bible to a Bible promise. And we'll ask God to give you victory over this tobacco. We'll believe he's doing it. And we'll reach right up and take it. And we'll have victory. And as I said it, the man said to me very quietly, I don't want victory over tobacco. Brother, was I shocked. It suddenly dawned over me that his dear precious wife had made up her mind that this was the night that we should high-pressure him into, receive, into receiving victory when he had not even asked. And then a whole picture came before my mind. This dear precious man has been picked on day after day by his wife to such an extent that the very victory he has wanted, he no longer wants because in rejecting the mark of the beast principle, he has rejected the whole bit. And I turned to him and I smiled. I said, you don't want victory over tobacco? Well, then don't, then don't ask for it. You don't have to have it. And, and he just was let up for air just like that. 
And then I took a look at it, the precious face of his precious companion, and did I see a look of disappointment. Here she'd gone out of her way, hoping that she could get added pressure so that with her pressure and my wife's pressure and my pressure, the three of us could shove him right into victory. This is one of the Mark of the Beast principles. Bad pressure by good, quote, unquote, by good people. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Isn't it a shame that perfectly good, quote, unquote, people would use one of the, of the principles of the mark of the beast in an effort to get people to do what they should do instead of explaining how they themselves were captives and looking up to the merciful, loving, long-suffering Christ who has purchased our salvation with his own precious blood, offers it free. And by citing, do you know, I tried to do my own bit, we could tell them. I tried my best. I tried works. Brother, did I try the works program. I tried the legalistic program. I found that nothing works except the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the just shall live by faith. When he has come, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. John 16, 8. Who is he? He is the Holy Spirit. Let me cite another example of the Mark of the Beast principle. We sometimes call it possessive love. That's quote, unquote. Because possessive love is not love. It's a misnomer. I'm thinking of a young woman came to us many years ago. She had a very uh, legalistic father, very legalistic father. And uh, also, he mingled with his religion. <laughs> You'd be interested in some of the ingredients of his religion. Legalism, suspicion, and force. What kind of a pie is that? That's the mark of the beast pie. And that pie, my friends, is a poisonous pie. So he mixed his suspicion, his legalism, and his human pressure on his daughter. Of course, in rejecting the pressure, she rejected his religion in, in total. She went out into the world, had her own family. The father would come to visit her every once in a while. And as he would come to visit her and her children, maybe on a Sunday or maybe on a Sabbath, they would feel, well, she would say, Daddy, we are going out to, to uh, such and such a park to take our lunch today. And he would say, no, we're not going to that park. He said, I can tell you a park that's better. We're all going to Peanut Park. And nothing that she could say would change his mind. He took over her. He took over her husband. He took over the children in the loveliest way. Oh, you know, so lovely. It is the sweetest mark of the beast you ever saw. No, he said, oh, this is much better. We'll be going there. She said to me, Pastor Kuhn, why is it that perfectly good-intentioned people like my father, who mean the best, should try to take over my home? He tries to make all the decisions, and he means the best. He's so innocent and so sweet and so lovely about it. But she said, I can't go. When he's at our place, I can't go to the park that I want to go to. And she said, the children will turn to me and say, Mommy, I thought we were going to this park. And she said, I try to cover for my daddy. And I say, well, you know, daddy won't be with us very long, so let's go to the park he wants to this time. And the daddy would return to his home thinking, oh, my, you know, didn't we have a wonderful time? I knew the best way for them. I knew what they should do. I knew where they should go. I mean the best for them. I would share my last crumb. His last crumb of what? Of a loaf of bread, each crumb of which is a mark of the beast. Principle. And he goes home and reports one more missionary visit. And Satan exult, exults and, and jeers, and he says to his imps, Yes, 
she, he is marking down a report for the beast. This is one more mark for the beast. He said, am I not doing a beautiful job with professed Christians who don't understand that the gospel is the power of God to salvation? And the gospel is good news. Unto you is born this day in the state of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He is the Savior. You can't save yourself. He is waiting, knocking at the door. I will come in. I will sup with you and you with me. I'd like to share with you a very curious series of statements that's found in the, in the Talmud. The Talmud, for those who may not be conversant, is the body of civil and religious laws of the Jews, the Talmud. Now think just a moment of the Talmud. It has to do with what? A body of civil and religious Jewish laws. Notice, to this, notice this statement now that appears in the Talmud. It says, Moses gave 600 injunctions. But King David, realizing that it would be impossible to memorize all of these, reduced them in the 15th Psalm to 11. 11 laws. It said, further, Isaiah, the gospel prophet, reduced them in his 33rd chapter to six. It said Micah, that beautiful prophet, further reduced them to three. And then Isaiah comes along again under the inspiration of the Lord. Remember, this is a statement from the Talmud. Isaiah further reduces them in his 56th chapter, in the first verse, to two. And then, this is all the Talmud speaking. And then, that Habakkuk reduces them in his second chapter and fourth verse to one, and it is this. The just shall live by faith. There's a law there. The condition, the law is, you exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. The apostle Paul quoted Habakkuk under the inspiration of the Lord. The same spirit that inspired Habakkuk inspired Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, if Paul did write the book, which I think he did. The just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. If any man draw back from what? From faith. From a simple childlike uh, like acceptance of trust in Jesus. What is it that pleases the Lord? He says the prayer of the upright is his delight. He says, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This is a childlike trust. No wonder, no wonder, friends, that Jesus said, except you become like little children, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. I just received a letter the other day from a mother who had told me the story of a little boy, just a little fellow, who had lost his little kitty. And he knelt down and he asked Jesus to bring back the kitty. And the other relatives thought, won't that be terrible? Can't find the kitty. Weeks came and went. The little boy said, Jesus is going to send me back my kitty. And the parents said in their hearts, I know it's a presumptuous prayer, but Lord, he may lose, lose his, his belief in Jesus entirely unless you come to his rescue. Weeks later, there was a knock at the door. Some young people, children came and presented this kitty, and they said, we're sorry. Our conscience bothered us, so we're returning the kitty. And they were lost into the night, so nobody knew who they were. The just shall live by what kind of faith? Childlike faith. It's the kind of faith that the two little girls I speak of many times, little tykes were quarreling. One said it is, the other said it ain't. The first little girl said, it is so because mommy says it's so. The second little girl shrugged her shoulders and said, ha, it still taint so. The first little girl knew her mommy. She loved her mommy. She knew mommy loved her. And so she turned scorningly at her friend who doubted and she said, it is so too. She said, because what mommy says is so, even if it ain't so.
Friends, may God deliver us from the mark of the beast principle, bad pressure by good people, and reach up and take the Holy Spirit and his power. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, in whom all power is invested. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who will do the work if we'll sit back and let you do it and receive it in simple faith in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Now it is question and answer time. Shall we seek the Lord for guidance? Dear Father in heaven, you've told us in Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter and the third verse, that if we call upon you, you'll answer us and you'll show us great and mighty things which we don't know. Oh, we want our hearts to open to your things, your ways, your guidance, your wisdom, even though it is completely different from the way we have felt that we should do. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> First question. This questioner says, I love all of God's children and all of the sinners he has died for, but I am hurt and deeply concerned about the lowering of the standards of true Christianity. The church is becoming so worldly in amusements, in dress, and frivolity. What can I do specifically to stem the tide of this demoralizing trend? That is, that is the concern <clears throat> of every true child of God. The Bible talks about those that are sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. Let us learn, though, however, exactly how Jesus, our example, handles things like this. Do you remember when he came, as recorded in the fourth chapter of John? He came to the well, Jacob's well. A woman walks up there to draw water. This woman had been married five times and was presently living out of wedlock. How in the world would Jesus approach a situation like that? If we can learn how he approached that situation and, and many others similar to it, then we'll know how we can uh, relate ourselves to situations such as you have mentioned in the questions. And it's so important. Jesus was pained to his very heart with the sins, with the vices, with the sensuousness of humanity. No one in this world could possibly fulfill the text of Scripture that says he hated iniquity and loved righteousness like Jesus, for he was a spotless lamb of God. He knew what sin had done to his universe, you see. But when he faced this woman, he didn't even by the lifting of an eyebrow let her realize how much pain it was causing him. If he did, you know what would have happened? He would have turned her off. She wouldn't have seen his mercy. She would only have been overwhelmed with the guilt which she already had. The devil is already the accuser of our brethren, Revelation 12:10. you see. And the devil had been accusing her. Make no mistake about that. Now, if when she looked in the very face, the very countenance of perfect purity, if she'd seen the pain that Jesus was really experiencing, it could have turned her completely off. Instead of that, Jesus... The Son of the living God, who had to die that death of separation from his Father because of our sins. Jesus, you see him smiling, as it were, into her countenance with a smile of love. And he converses with her. And he shares with her his love, his deep concern. And before the hour is over, that woman has a complete new concept of a life that she's not been living. And she immediately turns from this awful life that she's been living to a life of purity. If you and I who realize the sensuousness, the wickedness, the depravity that's going on even in religious circles, if we take an attitude of, of, of Christianity on stilts, let me say, if we take this holier-than-thou attitude, we'll only turn them farther off. Because the reason why they're going into sensuality is they don't know the love of God. They don't know his mercy. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ to whom thou hast sent. And God is love. God is mercy. 
merciful. Uh, merciful. He's, he's long-suffering. And when a man doesn't drink in of that love of God, he has to go somewhere and he gets the substitute all over the place. I found this through my entire ministry. Why do men drink of these broken cisterns? Because they've never learned of the love of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we, like Jesus, are to reveal to them that we have found a happiness, a contentment, a rewarding experience in Jesus. And when they find that we're happier in Jesus than they are in their life of sensuality, by beholding, they're changed in the same image. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This questioner says, I attended a church a few weeks ago, not of my denomination. During the Sunday school class meeting, the teacher made some most erroneous statements. I knew I should correct him then and there. But instead of the class listening to the truth I was giving, they sat there and just glared at me. Don't you think I did the right thing? Well, let's turn to Jesus and ask what he would have done. In Luke, the second chapter, in the last verses, it tells us how his father and mother had missed him for three days, and they came back searching, and they finally ended up in Jerusalem and finally in the temple. And here was this 12-year-old boy. Now notice, he was asking questions of the greatest, most erroneous leaders that religion probably has ever produced in the name of God. Instead of now meeting this head-on, it says when his parents met him, they found Christ asking questions. You see, if when you were there in that class, if instead of meeting this head-on, if you had asked questions, praying for the Holy Spirit, praying for wisdom, asking God to help you to be very winsome, you see, because we love him because he first loved us, and ask them questions intelligently, with a listenable attitude, then, you see, they wouldn't feel they had to defend themselves. The moment we put a person on, on his defense, it closes his mind to light. In order for him to open his heart to light, we must do what Jesus said to do, 1 Peter 2.17, honor all men. If a man is deceived in regard to God's truth, then we must use God's method to undeceive him, and that method is to respect him highly. The Bible says, esteeming other better than ourselves, Philippians 2, 3, you see? So as you'd look into their faces, as Jesus looked in the faces of these great leaders, and, you'd, and if they've said something that is true, you could build on that. I certainly appreciated, you might start something like this, I certainly appreciated what you mentioned about so-and-so. But I have a question. Uh, about such and such a thing, what would be the, uh, what would be the answer? You see, and you show a beautiful, loving attitude. What would you think of this? This is what Jesus did, and it says the people looked at him wonderingly at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. When they are erroneous, we need to be gracious, asking them graciously, then the Holy Spirit could use these gracious questions of ours to enlighten them. I like the way my favorite author, the one that's taught me more about communication than all the others combined, the way this author has stated that as Jesus was there speaking to these great men, asking them questions, it said, as he asked them questions, the questions were so worded that light was even in the question. In the form of a question, he was giving light. And he says, this is what they were wondering at. And it says, new beams of light shone upon these men's minds. But the young man asking the questions kept them from putting up their defenses, you see. And then they asked him more questions as though they were probing him. But my favorite author says, they were really wanting to learn a little more. Isn't that a beautiful way to approach error? Thank you for the question. We all know that the Lord has given talents. One of mine is a particular problem, though, music. I love it, and creatively it comes naturally to me. Now, if this talent is to be used for the glory of God, 
How can my ego be dethroned so that God can successfully use it? Oh, that's beautiful. The very fact that you raise that question shows that you're already in tune with the Lord. Because it, it, we, we read these words in Isaiah 57, 15. Listen to this. <laughs> this is why I'm congratulating you for the question. It says, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with him also that is of a humble and contrite spirit. So it shows you have a beautiful relationship with the Lord already or you wouldn't even write that question. It also shows that his Holy Spirit has revealed to you the common error of humanity, which is pride, egotism. It shows the Holy Spirit has revealed to you how sin entered. In Isaiah, the 14th chapter, 12, the 12th to 14th verses, it tells us how Lucifer became Satan. <clears throat> and I, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High God. So thank the Lord that the Holy Spirit has put this type of a question in your mind. It reveals a beautiful concept. Now, I'll share with you, for we have a right, as we counsel, we have a right to share with others some of our own experiences and how the Lord has helped us to take the right attitude. In our team, <clears throat> we have mentioned many times that we are like uh, an electric cord. <clears throat> this electric cord, uh, since we have motorhomes, we have an electric cord that reaches from our motorhome to the church where we park. And we say, my, somebody could start praising that electric cord. They say, my, you're powerful. If it weren't for you, look at what couldn't happen to my motorhome. No lights if it weren't for you, electric cord. My, no water pump if it weren't for you, electric cord, you know. And start praising the electric cord for all it's doing. And then we say, all you have to do is pull that cord from the source. And it's only fit for the garbage pile. So we're like the electric cord. We are merely the instrument. And we talk it over in our... In our in our team a great deal. We're just an electric cord. The moment we disconnect from that power, we have no power whatsoever. And then we mention a water hose. <laughs> Somebody said, oh, isn't it wonderful? Bless your little old water hose heart. Look at what you're supplying. No, the water hose isn't supplying anything. It's merely conveying a supply that's already in existence. You turn that water hose off from the source and and your supply is gone. And we think of it a great deal. Now, in my own life, in addition to this, when the devil tempts me, as he tempts us all, you know, there's no exception here, he tempts us with his own spirit of egotism. Thank the Lord, it isn't a sin to be tempted. As he tempts me, I find myself constantly referring to the experience of Solomon. To me, it is one of the most tremendous examples and lessons for me to keep in mind. As you know, Solomon, when he entered upon the kingship, that man was so humble. He was so childlike. He told the Lord he didn't know how to go in and come out among God's people. He said, Lord, I'm not asking for riches. You've promised me whatever I ask for. I'm not asking for fame. I'm only asking for your life or your wisdom. And the Lord was so pleased that that man had a wisdom that, that reached out to all nations. Kings actually came to listen to his wisdom and to think that then they built the temple of the Lord. And in his prayer, Solomon said, Lord, this temple is being built to your name and for your glory. And he continued, mention, continued mentioning God's glory and God's name and God's temple. You know, however, with that man, with all the wisdom that he had, all the power of God in his life, as the various kings came to him, and they began to praise him, and they said, look at your temple. The very temple that he built to the honor of God came to be known as what? Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple. And Solomon went down the drain because little by little he yielded to the flattery to the praises of human beings. And I say, oh, Lord, how in the world would I ever have been able to endure what Solomon couldn't endure? How in the world could I ever endure it? If I can't endure a little praise, 
How in the world could I have endured that? Because this man was actually the wisest man in the world at that time. So I said, oh, Lord, if Solomon, that mighty man of God, that stalwart of truth, could go down the drain, my only hope is to keep connected to the source and let people know that when they come around to praise us, for the devil always has some real good, sincere people who will come around and say, you are just tremendous. You're wonderful. And we can say, look, I'm just the card. I'm just the hose. Another thing I've tried, <laughs> for no matter how, uh, how homely you are, no matter how ugly you are, no matter who you are, if you're before the people in a religious way, the devil wants people to come and praise you. Several years ago, I decided that, that I would use the same method on these flattering people that, uh, who was it used this? Was it Wesley? I forget. But when people flattered him, he would say to them, that's just what the devil told me around the corner. This would let them know that they were the devil's instrument in praising him, you see. So I said, this minister said, it turned people off at once and they realized they shouldn't do it. So I remember somebody came and he said, Brother Kuhn, you're absolutely fabulous. I said, that's just what the devil told me around the corner. And he closed right up. I said, thank you, Lord, I've got a wonderful answer. So I began to use that. In another series, a man came and he said, Brother, I want to tell you, you're absolutely wonderful. And I said, that's just what the devil told me around the corner. And the man looked at me and he said, he got it right for once. I said, I want to tell you, you can't win for losing. The devil is persistent. He wants us to think we're what we aren't. Let's always say it's Christ. I've been thrilled for many years with a statement that I heard credited to Billy Graham. Somebody praised him and he said this, don't you praise me. If you praise me, God will withhold his blessing. I have felt for many years that one of the great secrets of Billy Graham's ministry is his humility. I hope this will help you. Thank you. I keep the seventh day Sabbath according to the Tenth Commandment, Ten Commandments, rather. But I have some close relatives who know full well that it is the biblical Sabbath, but every time I remind them, they argue against it. How can I get them to admit that they are doing wrong? That is a good question. Thank you for putting that question in. You know, you know how to get people to admit they're doing wrong? For me, to admit that I'm doing wrong. <laughs> Let me give you an illustration. <clears throat> Many years ago, when I was pastor of a church in Florida, <clears throat> they asked me to come over and speak at the Eola Park. Uh, it was a little meeting that they held once, uh, once a day, I believe, for about an hour. And during this, uh, this period of time, uh, they'd invite a speaker for, to speak for 30 minutes, and then he would submit to questions for about 30 minutes. Uh, I've seen this speaker speak with all the dignity of his office, all of his learning. But then when he submitted to questions, <laughs> they really heckled him. I said, I never want to be there. But lo and behold, one day, they invited him to come down, and they asked me to speak on the subject. They knew I was a Sabbath keeper. They asked me to speak on the subject why I am right and the whole world is wrong. When I stood up to present the subject, I said, you've asked me to speak on the subject why I am right and the whole world is wrong. I said, I want to make clear to begin with, I am not right. We're all wrong. Now, Jesus says, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. When you have friends who do not see God's word in the same light that you do, if you will humble yourself, they seeing our humility can be changed in the same attitude, 2 Corinthians 3.18. The less we try to prove to them they're wrong, the more quickly they'll admit they're wrong by seeing that we admit that we're wrong. The fact that I obey, and if I do obey all of God's commandments, Jesus says, does not justify me in sanctimony. He said, if you do everything I command you, you're to say, I'm an unprofitable servant. When a person who sees the Sabbath question in a different light from that of his relatives, 
when he will freely admit that he's made many mistakes, even in keeping this, the day, he's made many mistakes. And in many other areas, I've made lots of mistakes. And then they see that I'm humble. They see that I'm not going to high pressure them. Then you know what they're liable to say? They're liable to say, do you know, you're keeping the right day. I'm not. Be careful then. Be careful, beloved. Don't then start pouncing on them and saying, well, now that you know you're keeping the wrong day. <clears throat> no, 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 no. The meek he will guide in judgment. If they say, you're keeping the right day and I'm not, you can say, but many times I have not kept the right day in the right way. And let's all ask the Lord Jesus to take full control in our lives. Then they're delighted. They don't have to put up their defenses, do you see? Very important. This is why the Bible says, confess your faults one to another, James 5, 16. The more I confess my faults at a proper point and in an appropriate manner, we don't have to go into any sordid experiences of our lives. But when I confess that I am weak and I've made many mistakes, and only by the grace of God am I what I am, so they don't feel belittled. Then they don't feel ill at ease. You see, there are two special principles of communication that are very important. One is choice, which means I'm not to tell people unless they want to know. Joshua 24, 15. The other is humility, which means I'm to respect people instead of belittling them. This is Philippians 2, 3, 1 Peter 2, 17, Titus 3, 2, and so on. Try it out and you can find a hundred people will crowd around you to ask where people are now flying away. This questioner says, someplace in Scripture it forbids the use of the noxious weed. It therefore is wrong to smoke pot. I keep telling my son how terrible it is, but he only gets mad at me. What should I do? First of all, ask God to give you wisdom, James 1.5, wisdom to understand why the boy ever went on pot to begin with. And friends, if we ask God to give us wisdom as to why our young people go on pot to begin with, it's not going to be a very wholesome picture of ourselves. Do you know why people go on these, on these uh, routes, on these trips? They go on these trips to be happy. That's right. They're trying to drown trouble. Now, what is that saying to us Christians? It's saying they didn't see in us a happiness in Christ that made them believe that what we had was worth their endeavor to secure. So they took the other route. So instead of our scolding this boy, <laughs> instead of our girl, whichever it is, instead of our belittling this person, we should get over into our chamber, our closet, and say, Lord, forgive me. Evidently, I didn't do a very good job at, at competition with pot. Evidently, they saw some better results from pot than they saw from me. Lord, forgive me. Help me now to do what you promised, what you have in your word indicated I should be and do. Here it is. Psalm 51, 12 and 13. David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore what? Restore what? The joy of your salvation. Then will I teach transgressors your way. See, he doesn't say, give me the ability to belittle them more. doesn't say any such thing. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then will I teach transgressors your way. What is God's way? The joyful way, the happy way, the trusting way, the believing way. It says, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. So always, when we find people who are doing wrong as we view it, we should diagnose why. In what respect have we as Christians contributed toward it? You see, I received a long-distance call just yesterday. A man told me that his wife had just turned a pot for the first time. And she called him and she said, do you know, they were at a distance, she said, do you know, my, I went on pot, really, I had a lot of fun. You see? And now we come along as Christians, we say, fun, do you realize what you're doing? We should be able to say, I'm having a lot more fun in Jesus than anyone else out of him. Is there still time for one more question? Yes, and it kind of goes along the same line. How can one who is a Christian get the children to hold to high standards 
when my mate keeps saying I'm all wrong and what they want to do is all right? This is a very, very common problem among a, a Christian and a non-Christian marriage or a marriage of those who have certain very high moral standards and others who are very liberal. Now, Jesus tells what we should do. Thank the Lord for the Word of God. Do you know, my friends, when you stop to realize, here is a, here's a group of children, let's say, who are in the home not living up to the pure standards of Christ, maybe like watching certain TV programs. Here is a mate who is also doing the same as they are. Notice now, neither the mate nor the children, follow me carefully, neither the mate nor the children are respecting me. Study earnestly. Why? Is it that I have taken a sanctimonious attitude? It is not necessarily this, but often it is. Because Galatians 6, 7 says, whatever man sows, he'll reap. Let me be so meek, so sweet, kind, so unarbitrary, that they'll love to please me. You see, this is 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. It says that, the, the believing child of God should be extremely careful to be meek and sweet, wholesome, winsome. These are my paraphrases of the text of Scripture. So sweet and winsome, it says that those who do not believe will be won. Ah, here's the secret. The secret of winning people to the high standards of Jesus is in the word winning. He that winneth souls is wise, the Bible says. 1 John 4, 9 says, we love him because he first loved us. You win people on a high spiritual courtship basis, just like a man wins a maiden. He doesn't win her by belittling her parents. He doesn't win her by proving that he can win every argument or any arguments. He wins her by courtship. So we are to win our loved ones, not by winning arguments, not by belittling them, we win them by winning them, by having winning personalities. What's a winning personality? It's a, humbly, it's a humble, sweet, delightful, innocent attitude. And that is what Jesus carried on for poor sinners. He said, he that's without sin, you cast the first stone. I want to tell you, he took a defiant attitude toward the hypocrite, but oh, he took such a long-suffering attitude toward the repentant. Shall we pray and ask God to give us this same beautiful attitude? Thank you, Lord. You've said it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We ask believingly that the very life and love of Jesus will emanate from us. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.